My name is Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. Just before I begin, I want to thank everyone that listened and shared the podcast recently. The amount of support I've received has been almost overwhelming. I was smiling for the entire day yesterday and I'm so grateful for everyone who supported this endeavour. So thank you so, so much. Um, the sources for today include the treaties themselves, of course, any information on the European Parliament websites, and also a website called cvce.eu, where they talk about all the pivotal historical EU moments from 1945 to 2014. I would really recommend checking it out, and I'll put the link in the information box. Now, onto the legal stuff. Today, we are going to continue on the EU's political history, go into more depth about a political event called the Empty Seat Crisis, until we get up to the 1986 Single European Act. In the 1990s comes two further major treaties, the Maastricht Treaty and the Treaty of Amsterdam, which we will look at in future episodes. So I'll be able to keep this episode today nice and easy until we have to buckle in for the next two. In the 1960s, supranationalism took hold. In 1965, the Common Agricultural Policy, CAP, financing was proposed, which would mean the Commission would play a greater role and also bestowed additional budgetary powers on the European Parliament. There was also the proposal of moving towards qualified majority voting, which is where the majority can go ahead against the wishes of one individual state, making member states lose their veto power, instead of the principle of unanimity. Of course, whether to be any national interest at stake, the other states would surely try to reach a unanimous decision. Nevertheless, this made France very uneasy and it rejected this change, calling it, quote, an unacceptable renunciation of sovereignty. At this point in time, France held the presidency of the Council until June 1965. Charles de Gaulle criticised the founder of CAP, Walter Hallstein, then president of the Commission, for not consulting with other member state governments and, quote, for having acted like a head of state. Politics became stagnated and the situation was basically pretty much just France versus other member states. The situation was made worse as France refused any compromises and on the 1st of July 1965, the French government recalled its representative in Brussels back to Paris and, quote, announced France's intention not to take its seat in the Council of Ministers until it had its way. This was dubbed the empty chair crisis and was the first time that the EEC was prevented from operating due to the actions of a member state. France ended up staying away from Brussels for half a year. After realising that prolonged isolation will start to impact its national economy, France eventually agreed to resume negotiations, which were held in Luxembourg in January of 1966. Luxembourg's Prime Minister, Pierre Werner, significantly helped come up with what's called the Luxembourg Compromise, which is essentially an agreement to disagree. It provided a way of containing the supranational features of European integration and focused it back towards an intergovernmental point of view. The Luxembourg Compromise specifies that if the vital interests of a member state are threatened, a universally acceptable compromise must be reached. If such a compromise could not be reached, France insisted the unanimity rule to be used, but the other five member states weren't really that keen. Either way, they all agreed they could move forward and resume community activities. The Luxembourg Compromise, quote, fundamentally altered the spirit of the EEC treaty by creating a way to exert pressure on the council but also neglected to define vital national interest, preferring to leave this up for the states to decide. It must be noted that since the creation of the Luxembourg Compromise, member states have frequently used this in blocking majority decisions, and despite the literal interpretation of the text, 
it has been used in some minor issues as well, not just for vital interests. As CVCE.EU explains, while the Luxembourg Compromise allowed the six to break the deadlock, it also created a situation which sometimes gave rise to the resistance of change, in fear that negotiations might be blocked, and imposed a de facto limitation on the European Commission's right to propose legislation. This political loophole, which just got worse and worse as more states joined, was in part corrected by the Single European Act, which we'll take a look at in just a moment. Moving on to the 1970s, in 1973 the first expansion happened with some new members joining the community, the UK, Ireland and Denmark. In actuality, the UK applied to join the European Economic Community in the 1960s, only for their application to be vetoed twice by France. There's a lot more drama concerning the UK's entry into the EU, don't we all know it, but I think I'll leave that for a later episode. In 1979, parliamentary elections were held in each member state, which allowed for citizens to elect MEPs to the European Parliament in the first international election in the world. It may even be considered the first example of direct democracy. Different states have different approaches to the increased integration of the community, and the tension between these approaches has been a consistent theme ever since, especially today. There exists the supernatural approach, whereby independent European community institutions have more autonomous power and momentum, having more say in decision-making. On the other hand, there is the intergovernmental approach, where the states are more in control, for example, by using vetoes. Moving on to the 1980s. In 1981, Greece joined, and in 1986, so did Spain and Portugal. The move to join in at an early stage is poignant, consolidating emerging democracy in states that are transitioning from problematic military regimes. Then, in 1986 came the Single European Act, revising the two treaties of Rome. This was a big push to complete the internal market, which is where there are no internal borders, free movement of goods, persons, services and capital. Uh, They wanted to complete this by the 1st of January 1993, and it added momentum to increase political integration and to further the economic and monetary union that would eventually become enshrined in the 1992 Maastricht Treaty, or the Treaty of the EU. The SEA, the Single European Act, amended rules governing European institutions and expanded the powers of the European community in multiple policy areas. Objectives of the SEA included creating a common foreign and security policy treaty, and amendments to the EEC Treaty with regards to the Council's decision-making procedure, powers of the European Commission and the European Parliament, and the extension of the European Economic Community and the European Atomic Energy Community responsibilities. The preamble of the SEA focuses on another objective of the SEA, which is to improve the economic and social situation by extending common principles and pursuing new objectives to ensure a smoother functioning of the communities by enabling the institutions to exercise their power under conditions most in keeping with community interests. I have to say I find the wording of this rather amusing, given the whole drama with France and the MTC crisis. In order to create a single market by 1993, there was a bigger and bolder push towards qualified majority voting rather than unanimous voting. This meant that delays, naturally characteristic of unanimous agreement amongst 12 countries, were avoidable. No longer would unanimity be required for single market establishment laws, except for taxation, the free movement of people and the rights and interests of employed person measures. Qualified majority voting was carried out in four main areas, air transport, the free movement of capital, the free movement of services and maritime and the common customs tariff. New policy areas whereby qualified majority voting was undertaken included the internal market, economic and social cohesion, social policy, 
Research and Development and Common Foreign Policy. The SEA established the European Council, whose role was to formalise conferences of heads of states or governments, although note that it was only in Article 15 of the Maastricht Treaty that it later specified the Council's competences. It also established the Court of First Instance, which is now the General Court. Implementation powers were also introduced. Article 10 of the SEA allowed the Council to give the Commission implementing powers for the rules which the Council laid down. The Council could only exercise direct implementation powers in certain cases. Parliament's powers were also introduced with the requirement of its assent when concluding enlargement and association agreements. The cooperation procedure strengthened Parliament's position in institutional dialogue and gave it the possibility of two readings of draft laws proposed under a limited number of legal bases. This was the beginning of Parliament's future role, and now current role, as co-legislator alongside the Council. The 1990s. This is where the Treaty of Maastricht comes in, or the Treaty of the European Union. It officially created the European Union and marked a huge step in the process of creating an ever closer union. I will be leaving you guys with this for today uh, and in the next episode we will be tackling the Maastricht Treaty. This is another meaty one but it will be worth it I promise. Thank you so much for listening and of course feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye!